0: Well, I want you to kind of think to yourself about what is the ideal church? What is the church that is to be praised? What's the church that is often praised within our culture? When we think about churches, we we think about things within our culture, and we ask those questions are, what does our culture value about a church? And then the question becomes, what do we value about a church? So I want you to kind of think of for yourself for a moment what it really what really hits your heart about a church that's really worthy to be praised. A church that is one that is honoring God and then I want you to think about what brings successes. I'm going to ask you to bring me down just a little bit more if you would. Um, Just you guys know we're kind of working through this is Right, we're family, so we do some house cleaning things, and one of those things are, we're still working out sounds. There's some things that I get a ring to that you guys may not even be able to hear, but depending on where I'm standing, it's kind of what I hear primarily, and so um, we're just kind of working through some of that, and, uh, and so apologize, we're stopping along the way to do that periodically. Um, but one of the things that, uh, that we think about in churches, if you think about our culture, One of the very first things that people use to measure a church is often its size, right? I'm going to look to go to the church that's the largest. I'm going to go look to go to the church that has the most things that are beneficial to me. Uh, The most programs, the the best programs. I'm going to look for a church that uh, seems to have the most contemporary music, or in some cases, maybe the most traditional music. But we have kind of an idea in our heart and mind of kind of what seems to be important. I remember years ago, churches that would have signs out front of them on certain bring your friend days and win a trip to Mexico, you know, right? Churches that were able to attract, to, to get somebody on site through, through gimmicks, Well, one of the things that we believe kind of as Redemption Hill is that while our desire is to see the lost be a part of our services, our ministry, our gathering is what we believe in Scripture, which is that it is primarily for the believer. And that in so coming in, the lost will see the believers gathered together, loving one another, worshiping, proclaiming God's glory together, And seeing their need for Jesus. But that the primary missionary is not the one that goes to Africa. And not the one that is in the Sudan. But the primary missionary is each individual believer. Living out the gospel in community with other believers. Proclaiming the glory of God through the love that they have one another and through their growing faith. That's what we believe about the church. We also believe that we want those around here in our community to know who we are. We want them to know that we love them in this community. We want the the homes around this church to know that we love them. We want the schools in this area to know that we love these kids. We want others to know that we love them the way that Christ loves us. When people come to Redemption Hill and when they come to the body, to our gatherings, what we want them to see is we want them to see the truth, the truth of Jesus. And one of the reasons that we choose to not use a lot of gimmicks is because the world is full of gimmicks. All you have to do is go to Carl's Jr. or go to McDonald's. I mean, i got to be honest with you. McDonald's probably has the flattest hamburger known to man, doesn't it? And yet, when you look at it up on a screen, it's got these nice, full, plump hamburgers. You get there and you feel duped. The problems with gimmicks in the church is that we attract people not to Christ, but to the gimmick. And what happens is they feel duped. Because one week, we're gimmicky, and the next week, we're proclaiming truth. The church has to be the bastion of truth. When people come to the gathering, they need to know that what they're getting is consistent. That it doesn't change. That we're not trying to trick them into salvation. But that we believe what the scriptures teach us is that God is the one who draws. That our responsibility is to be the one that proclaims. Well, this morning we're going to begin our series in 2 Thessalonians. It'll be a short series, the book's only three chapters. But we've titled this series, Actively Waiting. When we look at our world today, we, we see a lot of things happening. We wonder, is Christ near? Is his return imminent? Meaning, is it happening now? And the answer is, we don't know. But what Paul told the Thessalonians in this passage was listen, live with an urgency, be ready for his coming. And my hope for us this year is that as a church, we would live with an urgency. And what you hear in our preaching is actually an urgency. A call to an urgency to live as if tomorrow is the last day. Not disappointed if it isn't, but rejoicing that it's in Christ's power that we are to live and proclaim His glory to a world in desperate need of Him. The book of Revelation was given to us as hope Not as fear. The only ones who should fear revelation are the lost. The saved, it's a hope. It's to spur us forward. It's not to scare us. It's to remind us that we are Christ and that when these things happen, when these things occur, that we're to be ready. And so the church in Thessalonica had this question they looked around and they saw the trials of the world and they thought, did we miss it? The tribulation's here and Christ hasn't come. Did we get it wrong? And I think sometimes we're very quick to think that the trials of this world mean that Christ is coming today. And yet it should cause us concern Because the question is, have you lived with the urgency that God has called you to live with? Are you ready for his coming? Well, the church in Thessalonians has been through a lot. We're going to look at that. And they're dealing with some real radical questions. If I'm growing in Christ, why is my persecution and suffering getting worse? How is it that Christ is near and yet not here? And better yet, what do we do when people live recklessly as if Christ is going to return and they live with no discipline and no self-control in the body of Christ? So my hope is as we look at this study together, what we'll see is that God calls us to wait actively, to actively wait upon his return with anticipation. But to really ask that question, am I ready? Am I ready for his return? Let's go ahead and look at this text together. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1 of the 2nd Thessalonians. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open to it. Toward the end of the New Testament, right before the book of 1 Timothy. And let's go ahead and stand together as we read this passage this morning. It says this. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy, Timothy, to the Church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Lord, may we take this introduction this morning, and God, may you implant it upon our heart. May we truly understand, Lord, what it means to be a church that is commendable. May your church reflect you and not the world. And may we trust that when we walk things out according to your way, you work them out for your will. May this be our prayer this morning, that your spirit moves powerfully within us, causing us to glorify you in everything that we do. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. So the question that was being asked by the church in Thessalonica was a simple one. What's wrong with us? Are we doing it well? What's happening? Because we're discouraged. And at the heart of this passage this morning is the idea that the church God commends continues to love Him and others through faith, even amidst ongoing trials. The church God commends continues to love Him and others through faith, even amidst ongoing trials. The church that God commends loves through faith in trials. Nothing here is mentioned about the size of the church. Nothing here is mentioned about the programs granted in and through the church. Everything that we see here is about the work of God through faith. You see, Thessalonica was located in the region of Macedonia. And we know from Acts 17, 1 through 4, that Paul planted this church in Thessalonica during his journey, his second missionary journey. And we're told that now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica, where there's a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women." However, verse 5 continues, and it says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. As a result of this task, this attack, verse 10 tells us that the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, Paul goes on to Berea. He moves on to Berea. Because why? Because after planting this church, these Jews were stirred up to jealousy and began attacking the Christians. We know that this same group from Thessalonica actually follows Paul along and continues to attack his ministry. We see that later in Acts chapter 17. They hated the Christians. They hated Paul. And so Paul moves and he he doesn't return there in that season of time to Thessalonica. He moves from Thessalonica and he goes on and he eventually lands in Corinth. Now it's from Corinth that he has this heart for the Seth Thessalonian church And he writes the first letter to the church to encourage them in their new faith, to to remind them to live for Christ, to be strengthened. He knows what they're facing in, in Thessalonica. Now, after writing this first letter, this was very shortly after the planting of this church, Timothy visits the church in Thessalonica. Timothy returns to Corinth with a message to Paul. And it's believed that the second letter is written in response to Timothy's visit with the Thessalonians. And it's written very shortly after the first letter. Thessalonica, this place that was hostile towards Christians, the church newly planted there, gaining hope from Paul through a letter But now, as they continue to walk in Christ, they don't see ease arising, they see hardship occurring. It's one of the the great problems with a, a gospel that is incomplete. It's one of the problems that when we tell people that when they come to Jesus, all of their problems are going to be better. We don't come to Jesus to see Jesus as a genie in the bottle, to resolve all of this life's problems. We come to Jesus because it says that He is the one that grants peace to our soul and salvation. He never promises an easy life here. In fact, for the believer, He promises something different, that we will be hated because He was hated. The call for us then becomes one of living out our faith and really understanding, Are we doing it right? Are we doing it well? How do we really know if we're doing it well? See, in short, the church in Thessalonica was wondering, what's wrong with us? We're pursuing God, and things get harder. We're pursuing God, and it doesn't seem like he's come back. And Paul, you said in your first letter that Christ was near. The end was near. And then, Lord, we got these people that are living irresponsibly amongst us. Who are claiming Christ, but choosing not to work. Not to do anything because they just assume that Christ is going to come and they can live undisciplined lives. And it's bringing us down. They're a burden to us. So Paul's writing to say, hey, listen, let me correct this false teaching that is coming amongst you. Let me share with you what I really mean by Christ is near. And let me tell you, you're doing it well. And I'm going to tell you how. So he begins here. And he says this in verse one, he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God, our father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch the emphasis in that passage? God, our father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He mentions twice in two small verses. Paul will often start the greeting of his letters in a similar fashion, not always with this level of repetition, but he reminds them who the church is. The church is not just somebody that shows up at a building. The church is not somebody who who just simply comes in and says, Hey, I attend this church. I go every week. I like it. It's comfortable. Makes me feel good. The church is not a place, but rather it is the assembly of the believers. It is comprised of believers. And therefore, who is the church? The church is those who are part of God's family in Christ. Those who are part of God's family in Christ... Your membership as a part of God's household, is a direct result of your faith in Jesus. In Ephesians 2, verse 13 through 18, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we have both access in one spirit To the Father. So he begins by saying to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church, who is it? It's those who are part of the family of God through Christ. Meaning that you have confessed your sin, that you have repented of that sin, and you've confessed Jesus as Lord. All those who've placed their faith in Jesus. All those who've trusted on Jesus for their salvation. And then he says, Their grace to you and peace from God our Father. He reminds us of our position in him, that God has granted his grace providing salvation and his ongoing peace that is found as we are reconciled to the living God. That's the peace we have. He's saying, listen, all this distraction, everything else, remember that it is my grace that empowers you and it is my peace that I've given you. Peace. Man, the world we live in, everybody's looking for peace. In Christ, there is peace. Peace as we submit to Him in His grace. It means that we can face the most horrific things in this life and walk in His peace. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 adds, For just as the body is one and as many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. See, the church then is made up of all of those who have professed Jesus as Lord. Every single one. One body. Many members, but one body. Ephesians 3 then goes on and tells us that this church, it says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Israel's purpose was to glorify God amongst the nations. When Israel rebelled, God took that purpose and granted it to all those, all those who believe in Jesus. And the temple became not a building, but the person. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit living within us, testifying that we are one in Christ. Think about that for a minute. You are one in Christ, but it is the fact that in your oneness with Christ, that then makes us one with one another. That that's our unity is Jesus. And that each of us shine as a light, as a beacon for the purpose of glorifying God. It it changes the nature of how we see the church. 85% of churches in America are less than 150 people in size. That number gets touted a lot as a bad thing. And it can be. It can be when apathy reigns within the body of Christ. When we have no heart for the lost, no heart for the community that we're in, it's a bad thing. It means that we're failing at the mission that God has given us to carry out. On the other hand... We need to also see that there are good things. That there are plenty of churches that are less than 150 that are completely mission-minded and mission-focused. Our definition of not success is not defined by the world, but it is defined by God. So then he goes on here, and he says, okay, now that you know that you're a part of the church, don't ever doubt that. Be reminded, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on and he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. So the church commended by God first evidences God's work in their lives. The very first thing is it evidences God's work in their lives. This word ought means under obligation. And notice the thankfulness is not directed towards humanity, but it's directed towards God. They don't walk in and say, oh man, you guys are doing such a great job. Just want to tell you, you guys are stars. Of all the churches I've planted, you're the best. Paul doesn't do that. Why? Because it puffs up. And it puffs up because it puts ownership in the wrong place. What he's doing here is he's thanking God for this church. He's actually acknowledging that God is the reason for these qualities. God is doing the work, not man. God's the one that's actually carrying out this, this change, this transformation. See, only he can bring about the changes mentioned in this passage. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, in these words, Paul shows that we are bound to give thanks to God, not only when He does us good, but also when we take into view the favors bestowed by Him upon our brothers. For wherever the goodness of God shines forth, it becomes us to extol it. We need to be seeing God's work in others' lives and praising God for it. We need to be people who are thankfully and are thanking often God for the work and the lives of those around us in the body of Christ. It's one of the ways, and we've talked about this, I've mentioned this a few different times over the last few months, it's one of the ways that we we can actually steal God's glory when we direct our thanks towards the individual rather than God as it relates to their growth. You're such a stalwart of the faith. Actually, no, I'm a weak vessel that God continues to grow. My thankfulness is for what God is doing in that person's life. And Paul comes along and he says, listen, you're discouraged. You don't know if you guys are doing it well. Let me tell you you're doing it well, and I'll tell you how you're doing it well. I want to let you know that I'm thankful for you. I thank God every day for you. I don't thank God because of what you bring to the table. I thank God because of what He's doing in you. Do you see the difference? One actually leads to usury. When I thank God for what somebody brings to the table, excuse me, when I thank people for what they bring to the table, rather than thanking God for what, they, what He's doing in them, I create a sense of pride and usury rather than an aspect of service and Genuine transformation. Everything that I am in Jesus is because of Jesus. And it's important that we remember that. And as the body of Christ, we need to call that out. We need to be thanking one another, excuse me, thanking God for one another and the growth that we see in each other's lives. Stephen Cole says this: He says, by thanking God for their growth in faith and love, rather than congratulating the Thessalonians for their progress, Paul is acknowledging that these qualities come from God. While we are responsible to grow in faith and love, we can only do so as we depend on the indwelling Spirit's power. Pray for yourself, your family members, and for other Christians that God would increase faith in Him and love for others. We can't manufacture love, and we can't manufacture faith. Only God can do that. So, what are the two evidences that he says here? The first is a maturing and flourishing faith. A maturing and flourishing faith. He says that he thanks God because their faith is growing abundantly. Now, what's interesting about this is he has this little caveat in here. He says, we give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Sometimes we can be afraid of giving too much praise to an individual can we not what's going to happen think about that as a parent you, you don't want to overly praise your children because then you breed in them a level of self-righteousness and confidence that maybe is not intended but what Paul's saying here is you can never overly thank God for the work in another person's life and you can never overly thank God for his work in your life that's an awesome thing So a maturing and flourishing faith is a mark that we're doing well. A faith that's growing. Now this word in Greek, growing abundantly, is a, is a word that means actually, literally, flourishing. And it carries with it an idea of vigorousness. It's something that's being pursued I think sometimes in our faith, we can take our faith very casually. We don't live in our faith with a level of urgency. And I think we would do well to pray that God would give us an urgency in our pursuit of Him. We, we kind of pray, God, uh, you know, help me out here. Help me have a better quiet time. Help me to, to love you more. But what Paul's saying here is that there was an urgency to their faith. They were flourishing in it. And we need to ask ourselves, are we flourishing in our faith? And flourishing means different things. But it is the idea that we're going to it. It, It's ready. It's in front of us. Last night, uh, Tyler was looking for his wallet. Could not find it anywhere. He looked all day for this wallet. And I was listening to him look to the wall. Lisa and I were both listening and we're kind of like, well, tomorrow we'll give him a hand. You know, like we were both kind of busy and we're thinking about it. We'd look, kind of casually look and look around and, and we couldn't find it. We're like, we have no idea where he's been. He's been all over the place in the last day and a half. Like I have no idea. And so we checked the places that we thought it might be, couch cushions, all this stuff. And he was very calm about it. I will say this, very differently than I would have been by about 10 minutes in, I would have been pretty angry and frustrated and more agitated. And I was thought, ah, he's doing really well. And so during this time, I, about eight o'clock last night, eight thirty last night, I looked at him. I said, have you prayed about this yet? And he's like, no. I said, let's come over. Let's pray about it. Let's see what happens. I said, Ty, I don't know how many times this happened to me where I've prayed about something and God just brings something to light that I've, I've just missed a hundred times. We sat down and we prayed about it together and he went off and looked. And I kid you not, he had been looking for this all day and the previous night. Ten minutes later, he comes down the steps. He's like, found it. I'm like, where was it? He's like, it was in my baseball card box. Like, I don't know how, you know. And so I looked at him and I said, Ty, we need to thank God, right? And he's like, Yeah? I'm like, yeah, we need to sit down and just thank the Lord. Because these are the moments that God builds our faith, Ty. He takes little things like this and lets us see that He's present and He's active with us. And He grows our faith. We need to have a maturing and flourishing faith that puts God before us in all circumstances. You see, what we're thanking God for is that our faith isn't growing because of anything we've done, it's but because of what he's doing. It's because we're resting in his promises, we're trusting in his promises. We're believing that he is good in all circumstances. First Corinthians 3 6 through 7 says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Are you thanking God for the growth in your life? Are you thanking God for the growth in others' lives? And even more, is your faith flourishing? Or is it just a casual relationship with God that feels like it can be dealt with and done with later? you ever taken a moment and look at your your life expectancy statistics? Ever wondered if you've outlived it? Are you living with an urgency as if tomorrow is the very last day that you have? The church that's commended is living with this urgency. The second evidence here is an increasing love for one another. An increasing love for one another. Verse 3 says, And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So the church that's commended is a church that has a flourishing faith, or we can take that down to in my personal life because I'm a member of that church, a member of God's church, a faith that is that is flourishing or vigorous. And secondly, the church that's commended is increasing in love for one another. It enjoys being present with one another. It cares for one another. When Each one another is sick. It loves the broken. It loves the difficult. Who has God placed in your life that is difficult to love? And then ask yourself, are you increasing in love? It's one of the best ways. Lots of division in our culture today. Do you love people with differing political views? Do you love people who are bulls in China closets who just pound away at your heart soul and mind one of the commentators on tv today that is very well known and i won't mention what network i went to high school with i couldn't stand her then and i'll be honest with you i don't like her now but god has put on my heart this woman needs jesus this woman needs jesus Our love needs to be increasing. The church that's commended has a love that increases for one another. It requires selflessness. It requires an exposure of the selfishness of our own hearts. It requires sacrifice. And this love was increasing to measure that God was thanking him for it. One of the greatest works that I saw in my own life when I came to Jesus was God causing me and growing me in love for others. I think Kelly would testify that that same truth. That when we gave our lives to Jesus, one of the great markers was we went from people who are quite content being by ourselves to moving towards a love with others that was increasing. Our love for one another actually displays the glory of God. And a church that loves one another well is a light in the world. It has more power than any kind of great event that the church may provide. It has more power than the greatest program that a church can offer. Because it is by our love for one another that we, people will know that we are His That's why a church of 50 can be just as effective as a church of 2,000. It just may look different. 1 John 4, 16 through 20 says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. But this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. He who loves his brother who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We love because Christ loved us. Christ is the one that gives us the ability to love one another. And that's the call that he's given us. So we've seen the evidences then of God's work. The church that's commendable and commended by God is one where the evidences of God's work is present through a maturing and flourishing faith. and through an increasing love for one another. The church that's commendable is also one whose witness for other churches and believers is one to imitate. That the witness for other churches, believers, to imitate. He goes on in verse 4, and he says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. Now notice, he's thankful to God first, but now there's this church That he's saying, listen, not only are we thankful to God for the work that's present in your life, but we boast of you to other churches. Why? For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. It is easy without duress to pursue God in faith. That's what monks do all the time, Christian monks. They'd go off and they would find a place and they would just live there forever, separated from the world. It's easy to increase in love when there's nobody difficult to love, right? I mean, that's sometimes why we find ourselves gravitating to people who are like us, because we don't want to be around people who aren't like us. Those are easy situations, And Paul acknowledges that those are both works of God. But then he says, listen, we boast of you to the other churches. Why? Because these things are happening while you're experiencing persecutions and afflictions. See, we're to be a witness for other churches and believers to imitate. Individually and as the body. And that arises through patient faithfulness in Christ when facing trials. Patient faithfulness in Christ when facing trials. The word here is steadfastness. The Greek word, hopomone, is the word that really means patience. It's the idea that I patiently endure. I patiently remain faithful. What it means is that when we face trials, we're not quick to get out of them. As the body of Christ, the body of Christ that is tested goes through trials. Trials. That's that's why it's hard when you you see the church hopping from map to map to map to map. Now, there are real reasons to leave a church. There are biblical reasons to leave a church. But when chirp hopping is taking place, when people are moving from church to church to church, or the going gets rough so I get out, that's not God's call for our church. God's call for his church, the one that's commendable, is they stand and stick together in Christ through the good and the bad. And the goal isn't to get free. I've been working with a church, not in this area, but another area that has gone through tremendous transition. The elders recently appointed a pastor to the church. And truth be told, the primary reason that this person was appointed as the pastor was because they had gotten tired. And now a number of them are wondering what we do when we've brought in the wrong guy to lead. In fact, even having questions about whether or not there's doctrinal alignment on key issues. The goal is not to get out of the trial. The goal is to grow in faith and increase in love as Christ works in us through the trial. It is precisely because of the trial that God is growing us and flourishing us. It's why we can have peace in the midst of trial because God is working and continuing to work In Matthew 13, verse 20 through 21, we're told this about the faith of those whose seed, where the seed has been sown on rocky ground. It says this, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Why don't we boast in people just when we see their, their... their faith growing and being excited at why don't we boast in them just because we see love increasing because untested faith is not necessarily grounded faith, rooted faith, faith that has been tested. It's one of the reasons that elders have the qualification of being tested. They need to show that they've borne up under that persecution and that suffering. We as Christians need to remember that God allows us to suffer so that our faith might grow, so that we might bear witness to the world of the testimony of who God really is. Very few people care what's happening in your life when things are going well, but many will take notice when they see peace and hope in the midst of utter darkness. Again, it's why we must be so vigilant. To say that our strength is not found in us, but in Jesus. It's why our praise is for what God is doing in us, not the praise of the individual. And it is in these things that we boast. Paul uses the church of Thessalonica as an example to the rest of the other churches of God. What an awesome thing. That's why Paul could say, imitate me. Paul would say, imitate me, not because he was cocky and self-righteous, but because his faith had been tested. And he's saying, be tested and be faithful. Patiently endure. Walk in patient faithfulness. One of the reasons that comfort hurts us so much is we don't really know how to patiently endure. Paul Tripp makes a quote that he simply says this one false statement or one true statement about the falsity which we often claim. When we look at the difficulty of the simple, of the situation, and we simply say to ourselves, I can't do this. We've chosen to believe a lie because God says you have everything you've already needed to endure it. we need to be a people who live in the readiness of Jesus. We need to be a people who live with an urgency for his gospel. And what you'll note here is that what Paul was telling these Thessalonians was, listen, you're doing it well. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Your faith is growing you're increasing in love with one another, and your faith has been tested. You truly are living out the great commandments to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The scripture tells us that all of the law is wrapped up in those two things. And Paul is telling this church, you have done it. You're continuing to do it. And walk in it. Don't become discouraged. Keep fighting. And allow Christ to do the work. May that be our prayer today. As Redemption Hill Church. As we look at this passage this morning. That we are a commendable church. That we see. That the things of this world. The suffering of this world. Is a part of the church. And I hope. That what we see. Is that. COVID is a time that should expose our hearts and our minds to what we really consider important. Can we suffer for a little while for the sake of the kingdom? That's the question. Is God going to use us even in the midst of the world of chaos? And what I would argue with you that Paul is saying is that it is in the chaos that Christ is most seen. So let's walk with an urgency to our faith and live in the power of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the grace that's displayed towards us. Thank you for these four small verses that tell us of the commendable church. God, may we no longer look out and see the effectiveness of a church through the lens of the world, but may we see it through the words of your truth. May we evaluate our lives and ask those questions. Are we growing in faith? Are we increasing in love? And are we patiently enduring? And Father, where we see weakness, may we seek you, knowing that as we submit to you in all things, you are and will continue to perfect your work in us. May we be a church that glorifies you in all things, and we ask this in your name. Amen.